My name is Grady Horn, and I have been attending Glad Tidings for the last 17 years and then here at Harvard City for the last three years. And I serve as an elder here at the church, um, but I also help with the youth ministry. And actually, this coming Wednesday, if you have a student between the grades 6 and 12, uh, we'd love to have them join us for our game night. We're going to have Mario Kart on a big screen. We're going to play um, some other retro games, and then we'll have tabletop games and then group games as well. Some of these games we've never played, and they're they're really fun, um, so we would love to have them this coming Wednesday. But would you please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word? Our scripture today is in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. It says this, Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the Pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick, sick people blind, lame, and, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, The man who healed me told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who has said such a thing as that? They demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. We continue today in our series, That You May Believe. We are looking at the seven signs that are found in the Gospel of John. These are miracles that take place, and we're working our way all the way to Easter, where we will see Lazarus raised from the grave. And so we're, we're really excited for the series and what it is um, about and what God's doing in our lives. Uh, so with that said, let's open in prayer and dive into the message today. Father, we come before you. Jesus, your word, it's living, it's true, it's active, it's powerful. Because you are living and true and active and powerful. You are the word made flesh that dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory of God because we've seen you, Jesus. And so, Father, today I pray, Lord, would you help us with this sign that we would be a people, that God, you are our greatest treasure, not even what you can give, not even what you can do, not even the miracles you can perform, but you are our treasure that our faith is in you, not even in necessarily what you can do. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would rest in this place, that you would shape and mold hearts, that we would more firmly trust and love you. In your mighty name we pray, amen. So this whole series is looking at the, the signs that are in John's gospel, signs. And um, the signs are essentially miracles, signs that you may believe. 
They're, these miracles, they're, they're declarations of truth. Um, how many of you in this room have ever had God do a miracle in your life? Or, or, or in someone that you've known, right? Um, this is what we're talking about. In, in the Gospel of John, he records these seven specific miracles that take place that Jesus performed. Um, for me personally, one of the coolest miracles I've ever seen in my life, um, it happened at a, a youth camp. Um, how many of you have ever played that classic good old game, tug of war? You know what I'm talking about? There is nothing better than a good old game of tug of war. And so you know how great teenagers are at listening. And um, <clears throat> that's a joke. <laughs> so we had told them, whatever you do, do not wrap the rope around your hand in tug of war. Because when you've got like, you know, 10 people in a line, you wrap that rope, your hand is toast. And uh, our, our anchor guy, who was this big football player, I mean, he was a hoss. This dude was, he was the end of it. And, uh, you know, I went through and I, I talked to each one of them, I'm like, listen, guys, we got to win this. We want the points. You know, I'm not competitive at all. And um, I was telling him, I'm like, you know, don't lose this for me. You know, <laughs> and so we get to him, I'm like, you know, pull with all your might. And I'm like, but whatever you do, do not wrap the rope around your hands. Well, of course, he's in the back and he thinks he knows better. So he wraps the rope around his hands. And I feel like I need to tell you, we did win. Um, <laughs> but at the very end of it, when the rope kind of drops, I hear this blood-curdling scream. And I look to the back, and my anchor player is laying on the ground, just holding his hand, writhing in pain. And I come running back there, and his name was Garrett. And I'm like, Garrett, what's wrong? And he had wrapped the rope around his hand. And the tension of it had literally popped his knuckle completely out of place so it had filled up, and I mean, it had risen like that size in just a matter of like a minute or two. And I, my eyes are like cue balls, and I'm freaking out, and I'm like, oh my goodness, we've got to get him like to the hospital. He probably broke a couple bones, and I'm sitting here. And so we send a kid off to run and go get the camp nurse, and they're getting ready to call and like get him to like the hospital. And I stop the kids, and I'm like, listen, okay, we need to pray for him right now real quick. So... We all start praying for him, and as I'm praying and as we're praying for him, I literally watch before my eyes his hand go right back to normal. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, it was like one of those moments you're just like, what is going on? This was incredible. I mean, and all the other kids, their eyes are closed, and they're just praying. You know, and I'm just sitting here. My eyes are open, and I'm like, I can't believe what I just witnessed. That was incredible. That's, a, a miracle has that ability to do that. It's a wow factor. It's a moment where your mind is like, I can't believe. I mean, the disciples, they saw stuff that just would blow your mind. Jesus walking on water. Jesus takes a Lunchable and feeds 5,000 people, right? Like he's like, hey, little kid, what do you got in your brown bag today? I need it, <laughs> right? And he feeds 5,000 people with it. These, but, but what I wanted you to see in this series is as John writes this, he wants us to move past the wow moment and realize that these signs, they were incredibly important. These miracles were more than just the miracle. They were more than just the wow. They were declarations of truth. Like whenever you think of the word sign, I want you to think of like a road sign. If you're driving through like the mountains late at night and it's a torrential downpour and you see a sign that says curvy road ahead, slow down, even if you can't see the road, you trust the sign and you slow down because it's letting you know what's ahead. It's giving you information. That's what John is saying that Jesus is doing through his miracles. That he is unveiling something and he is revealing a truth about himself or his ministry and what he has come to do. It's a message, it's a declaration. So let's dive into this sign 
today, and it starts with an unexpected visit. It says this, Afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days, and inside the city near the Sheep's Gate, there was a pool of Bethesda, or the other versions say Bethsaida, with five covered porches. This is beautiful, and this is important. Watch this. Jesus arrives at a party, but he heads to the broken. Jesus comes to a feast, and he comes to the hurting. It says, it's afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. It, John doesn't tell us which one. There's a lot of different speculations. Some commentators say it's the Passover. Some say it was either like the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or, or like the, the Feast of Booths. Or there's multiple different speculations. But what we know is this, is it's one where a lot of people would have gathered and came to Jerusalem. There's massive crowds. There's lots of celebration. There's lots of rejoicing. Families are getting together. There's... there's this excitement that's in the air. And as Jesus comes, he heads to a place where he knows where hurting and broken people are. That's so important for us to realize. Because sometimes in our life, it feels like everybody else is partying, but we're in the midst of pain. Sometimes in our life, it feels like, man, everyone else has got it together and everything's going good, but where's God in the midst of what I'm going through? And can I tell you something I love about this story is that why maybe everybody else in your life is out there having the time of their life where it seems like they've got it all together. Your king is near the brokenhearted. <clears throat> it was an unexpected visit. Jesus comes and, and as he arrives to this place, he starts heading to the broken. He goes not first to the celebration, he instead heads where there's desperation. And it's a representation of the heart of God. In your own life, many people are feasting and celebrating while you're in your brokenness, but God is near and he is there with you. So let's understand the setting. It talks about the pool of Bethesda, okay? Um, this is actually kind of neat. We need to understand uh, what this, this place is and what it was. Um, Archaeologists have kind of uncovered where they believe that this was. In a lot of um, commentators, they speculate it essentially was most likely not just even one pool, but two pools that were parallel to each other, okay? The picture that you can kind of get is it actually, uh, a lot of people even believe they were almost shaped to look like the Ten Commandments, okay? So you've got these two pools that were surrounded by, what, five columns, so you've got the Ten Commandments, like, like the, this picture of almost like the Ten Commandments surrounded by five columns, which would have been likely a representation of the five books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, so there's a huge representation of like their historical beliefs. And there was a mythology that had been grown up in around that area. If you look at some of the... Um, like I think it's still in the King James Version, but in a lot of some of the other ones... It talks about the fact that the people that were there, they believed that like an angel would come and stir the waters, okay? And that as the waters would be stirred, essentially the first person who could get in would get healed. And so there was this belief that like when the water was bubbling, that meant the angel was stirring it and that it's not found in later translations because the earliest manuscripts that we have of it don't contain that section. It was something that was added on later on. But you get from the feeling as this guy is, is talking about this, this is a belief that he had, that like there's this angel that's stirring the waters and if I, could just, if I could just get in when it's bubbling, then I'll be healed. Now, we laugh at that today, but come on, 
we believe in some crazy stuff. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But this the other thing is it says it was the pool of Bethesda and it was right outside the sheep's gate. So let me give you a little bit more background. It was located outside the sheep's gate because what they would do is that shepherds that were bringing in the sacrificial lambs, they would bring them to the pool of Bethesda to bathe the lambs in this pool, to clean them in preparation for their sacrifice. They would come in and out through the pool and then they would go on to be presented as a sacrifice. So watch this. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world, comes to the place where the sacrificial lambs are brought into that is a representation of the law that is representing and describing and declaring of who he is and that's surrounded by the broken people hoping for healing. You've got the healer amidst everything that describes who he is. That's the setting where this miracle takes place. And so let's dive into the conversation. It says, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, they lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. I want you to think how long 38 years is. I'm 38 years old. He's been sick since the moment I was born. He's been paralyzed. He's been in this condition his, in, like for 38 years. And it says, and when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? That's an important question. And his response is this. He says, I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. This man has been coming for 38 years, coming and trusting and hoping that when the waters bubble, if he could be the first person and putting his faith in the stirring waters, that it would help him. And he says, yeah, I can never get in. Someone else always steals my miracle. Ever felt like someone stolen your miracle? Someone else got what you wanted? Someone got there first? Someone beat you to it? See, what happened is this, is what, as they've uncovered, as they did archaeology, underneath these pools was like a natural, like hot spring. I want you to think of like in... Um, California, like the hot springs where they've got the sulfur comes up underneath of it, and they've got the bubbling and then the heat and the sulfur that kind of comes through it. So it would creep through occasionally, and then it would cause the bubbles to essentially start coming up. And they didn't understand that at the time, and so as they would see these, their assumption was that there was an angel stirring it, and so there was this mythology, again, that they believed if we could be the first one in. Like, imagine this guy for 38 years arriving at the pool, just staring at that water, hoping and praying, man, if it bubbles, if I could just be the first person in, then maybe I could get healed. If it bubbles and I can get the first person in that water, then maybe, maybe today could be my moment. If I could, if I could, if me, 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 my, well, my ability, my efforts, my what I can do, what I can control, what I can. Now we laugh at that and we're like, okay, come on, dude. Like you're trusting in seltzer water, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're trusting in jumping in a water that bubbles. Hold on a second. What about your bubbly water? God, if I could just get that promotion. this would actually happen, then everything would be different. God, if this, right, fill in your blank. 
God, I need this to happen. And if this could happen, then God, I really could believe in you. Like, I, I, I need this. This could be the one thing that would change everything else about my life. God, I, I need that. We all have our own little fears and confessions. Things that we think that if I could just have that. And I want you to notice this real quick. This guy is essentially close to sitting on the edge of the pool trying to watch for it to bubble. And he's being asked to buy his faith. years he had to at least a couple times get close to this guy right there's probably a couple times he's staring at the water he sees one tiny little bubble he noticed no one else has noticed ted's a little bit closer and he's like hey ted look at that pigeon he gets a little bit closer he's like he's like i mean this guy is most likely trying to do everything he can to be the first one in there like you know he's done whatever it is that he can do to be the first person in there but he always feels like somebody else has stolen his miracle. This sign is so important for us because it does something. It shows us our false belief about miracles. It's the if only mindset. If only I had this. If only this changed. If only God did this for me. If only he healed me. If only he answered my prayer. If only he did this important thing. If only he changed this about me or my life or my circumstance or gave me that or took that away or who removed that annoying person from my life. No, none of us have ever played that prayer, right? None of you are like David. Lord, punch them in the jaw, break their teeth. (laughs) Some of you are like, I didn't know that was in the Bible, but I'm praying that prayer now. many of us, we think if only I could actually see a miracle, then everything would be different. I would believe, I would know he's real. I would serve him more. I'd be more dedicated. I would, we think it for our own lives. See, the problem is this, is we associate sight, experience, and encounter with belief. We believe that if we could just see the miracle or have what we think that we wanted, that it would create faith in our heart. We focus on the outcome rather than what's actually happening at the heart level. I want to contrast two different signs in John's gospel. I want you to see this because this is important. In John's gospel, one of the things that he does very powerfully, he'll compare things and contrast things all throughout it. Well, like, for instance, in his opening text, he talks about light and darkness. And he's showing, like, the difference between the two and how Jesus, the light of the world, came into a world that was dark. Now, notice this. And we're going to get to it in a few weeks. Um, But in John chapter 9, we're going to see a sign of a man who was born blind. Okay? And so John is, in essence, he's comparing and he's contrasting these two different stories. In John chapter 5 today, we see the, the lame man, all right? He was sick for 38 years. That's a great length of time. In John chapter 9, the man was born blind. Since the moment of birth, he wasn't able to see, so that's a great length of time. He was healed on the Sabbath. The blind man was healed on the Sabbath. In fact, if you wanted to be healed by Jesus, your best bet was to try to find him on the Sabbath because he had a tendency to heal people on the Sabbath just to tick off the Pharisees. The miracle caused a stir and a confrontation with the Pharisees in both instances. And what I love about this is in both instances, 
Jesus, after healing the person, he goes ninja and he just disappears. He's like, ha, I'm gone. <laughs> right? And that person's like, each one, they're like, hey, who healed you? And both times they're like, I don't know. He's just here. Like, I, like, and what I love about that is that it's not like Jesus isn't abandoning them. He's not forsaking them. He's testing their hearts. What are you going to do with the haircut? What are you going to do when you attack those demons in your life? And he takes a step back and he watches to see it play out. And in John chapter 5, we see this. him out and then Jesus comes and finds him he finds both of them afterwards John is contrasting these two different times to show us two different outcomes of what has happened when Jesus has performed this miracle now I want us now that we've contrasted those two signs I want us to compare three different stories Judas the nation of Israel and the Romans if our false belief about miracles is that it always creates um belief and faith what we need to understand is that it's what's happening at the heart level the miracle can reveal that the lame man the nation of israel and judas uh, for all three of these it was what have you done for me now god calloused hearts stiff necks a desire to do what they wanted even in the face of countless blessings and miracles i want you to think about this for a second we think if we could just see one big miracle like I'm talking like an astounding one where like I would believe till the day I die, right? Seriously, well, most of us are like, if I saw Jesus physically, that would be enough. Or if I saw Jesus walk on water like the disciples did, that'd be so, that'd be so cool. But Judas was one of the 12. Judas watched Jesus spit in the mud, rub it on a guy's eyes, say be healed the man goes washes it off and he can see Jesus, Judas watches Jesus open deaf ears Judas watches Jesus look at a dead body and say you must live again and it does Judas watches Jesus go over to the kid with his brown sack lunch and go we're going to feed 5,000 Judas watches Jesus walk on water I mean, every single miracle recounted in the Gospels, Judas with his own eyes saw what was happening. But when push comes to shove, and suddenly he realizes that Jesus isn't going to be the military general that he expected him to be. That he's not going to rise to power and put Judas in position of other people and overthrow Rome. And that he had come for a different purpose. Judas is like, that's not what I signed up for. I want an earthly kingdom. I want to be a ruler. What, what is this talk about you giving of your life and your body? I'm not down for that. And so Judas takes a moment and he goes to the chief of priests and the Pharisees and the leaders and he goes, listen, 
He's not who I signed up for. So for 30 pieces of silver, I'll get you a time and place when there's not a lot of people around that you can take him and you can get him without anybody knowing. After seeing miracle after miracle after miracle, he betrays the king. What about the nation of Israel? Have you ever read certain parts of the Bible and you're kind of just like, what were they thinking? You know what I'm talking about? Like there's moments where you're like, I've done some pretty stupid things, but I'm not sure I've done that stupid of it. Like, like imagine being the, the nation of Israel. You're in slavery and bondage, and you witness the ten plagues. Like, you see those things happen. The Nile turned to blood, right? You, you watch the, the plague of frogs or, the, or the, all the different things. that. I mean, like, that would have been, been so cool to see, but also freaky at the same time. Just like a whole land, like, covered in frogs. Like, if you don't believe in God after that, you're just like, this is just weird, <laughs> But they see all of those. And then they're set free. They're on the run. They're, they're headed to the Red Sea. Then out of nowhere, suddenly Pharaoh's coming. And they're like, oh, God's abandoned us. Oh. And God's like, no, I haven't. Water parts. They walk across on dry ground. And then the Red Sea completely envelops the Egyptian army. And their enemies are toast, just like that. Then on top of that, every single day, God performs a miracle and provides them with manna to eat. Every day they encounter the God of miracles who provides for them. And every second of their journey, they keep trying to go back to Egypt. They saw more miracles in such a short time than probably anybody in the history of recorded mankind. And it did not create faith in their God. Then you get to the lame man. 38 years. He sits by that pool. If I could just get in that water. If I could just be the first one in. If I could just get in there before anybody else. Maybe, just maybe I can be healed. And that's really interesting. So, when you get to the story in John chapter 9, they're going to ask Jesus, like, was this man born blind because of his parents' sin or because of his sin? And Jesus is like, you've got a, a false understanding about this. It's neither. See, in their day and time, they believed that whatever sickness or malady you had, it was because of a result of a particular sin that you did. And Jesus goes, that's not the case. Now, I will say this. There is some things that go into our life because of the sin we've chosen, right? How many of you have ever encountered some of the consequences from your own sin, right? Some of you, you're like, my own children, there's times I've had to make them face the consequences of their own sin, right? What's interesting in this instance is that the, the, a lot of commentators believe that this person's condition was actually due to their sin. The reason for it is, if you notice, a lot of times whenever Jesus heals someone, before he actually heals them, he'll often say, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't do that in this instance. In fact, he finds this man much later after everything's happened, the layman, and he goes, stop sinning or something far worse is going to happen to you. And the man doesn't repent. In fact, it's kind of like Jesus is like, stop sinning, and the guy's like, oh, okay, cool. Hey, what's your name? Because I need to turn you in. Seriously. Compared to John chapter 9, God meets this man, and afterwards he comes and he's desperately longing for the Messiah. Jesus reveals who he is to him. Right? The picture you get here, though, is this man, he's been for 38 years longing for a miracle. And when he sees it, and when he experiences it, it doesn't create faith in Jesus. 
there's an incredible importance for this sign. It's because God has pursued the hearts of all, often in astounding ways. God has pursued the heart of every single person ever born. The, the word says this, that God desires to seek and save the lost, that he desires that all would come to repentance. Romans chapter 1 says that all of creation stands as witness and testimony that God is who he is and how great and powerful that he is. And God gives this miracle to a man who will reject the giver of life. And God will call a disciple who will betray him with a kiss. See, this is the truth. It is not the reality of our circumstances, but the reality of our hearts that determine true faith. He had 38 years of brokenness, and he was made whole in a moment. Like, how cool would that have been? I mean, here's this emaciated guy. Can you imagine how, like, thin his legs? His muscles have atrophied. He's not used them for 38 years, and Jesus is like, be healed. And out of nowhere, he pops up to his feet. Like, that's astounding. That should have created, like, the miracle was a test of his heart. Jesus heals both men, this man in John chapter 5 and the man born blind in John chapter 9. And he leaves their presence, he allows them to get into trouble, and he watches them from a distance because the test of the question is this. What is happening to you at the heart level? The miracle itself did not create belief. It exposed the heart. And this is what it exposed. What do you want more, the gift or the giver? What do you want more? That's a question for us today. See, their encounter revealed their heart. See, this man, he had a misplaced belief and trust. It was all on himself, what I can do or what I can't do. I need to be able to get into the pool or I have no ability to get into the pool. His entire perspective was coming from a lens of his pain, his past, and his ability. He was putting all of his trust in that bubbling water. Here's my question for us today for just a moment. Would you pause with me? What's your pool? What's your Bethesda? What's that area of your life that you're like, if I could just get into that? my life would change. I'd finally be happy. I'd finally have joy. I'd finally know what love was. I'd finally have peace. I'd finally feel like I'm in control. <laughs> Newsflash, you're never going to have control. that area of your life what's your pool what's that thing that like you're looking at it bubbling just going if I could just if I could just get into that if I could just have that then finally maybe I would really be really be happy can I tell you something listen to me it ain't gonna happen maybe for a moment right maybe uh, our happiness is such a fleeting emotion Happiness can be changed in one moment just by McDonald's hot fry, right? You know what I'm talking about? Season perfectly with some salt, and you're just like, you get that first bite, and you're like, ooh, hello. Day got a little bit better. <laughs> but take that exact same fry, wait 10 minutes. You know what I'm talking about? And that's not the same taste anymore, is it? 
You're like, what is this? <laughs> now, it'll still be preserved in your car for the next 15 years. Like, it'll be okay. You could still eat it. But my point is that it could taste completely different. And that happiness fleeted in the span of 10 minutes. 10 minutes. So many times in our life we're like, if I could just get in the pool, and we've, we've got our own pools of Bethesda's. If I could just get in the pool, I'd be happy. Jesus is your pool. The importance of this sign is it reveals to us what is happening at the heart level. This man had an unchanged heart. It was still, what have you done for me now? Jesus confronts his heart by saying, hey, quit sinning. And rather than repenting, he instead takes that moment to sell Jesus out. In the wake of his miracle, his heart wasn't changed because he focused on selfishness, not surrender. A refusal to allow your heart to be changed will inevitably change what you do, what you think about, and how you view Jesus. Please hear me. This is so important for us. We have to abandon the false belief that Jesus is a genie in the bottle. Rub the magic lamp, get what I want, get what I need, and then live my life, and then when I need him again, rub the lamp, get what I need, get what I want, go live my life. When I need him, rub the lamp, because listen to me. If that's the case, listen to me, when you don't get what you want, or when pressure comes, or when persecution comes, you will not only abandon him, you will change your view and reject him. As soon as Judas realized, he's not my conquering military hero. This isn't what I signed up for. I thought, I thought we were on a mission to take out the Romans. I thought, I thought he was going to be our earthly king, the next great David. I thought, I thought, well, I'll sell him out. And he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Can I tell you, man, a lot of Christians have betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Do you follow Jesus because of what he can do or because of who he is? The man born blind, I love it. I'm telling you, I can't wait till we get to that here in a few weeks. Because the Pharisees, they're pressing him hard. They go to his parents, and his parents throw him under the bus. They're like, he's old enough, just talk to him. <laughs> right? Seriously, I'm not even joking. It's in the text. And they go back to the guy, and his response to them is, man, you're asking me lots of questions. Do you want to become his disciple too? Right? Instead of running from it, instead of, he stands up as a bold witness for who Jesus is. Because he found the one whom his soul longed for. We desperately need this sign because we need to wrestle with the fact are our hearts being changed? Because listen to me, please hear me. The lame man, Judas, and Israel were all witnesses to rare, incredible, and powerful miracles. And the end result is they all gave up on God. Judas and the lame man will both betray Jesus because despite what he had done for him, Jesus became worthless to them even though he had already done so much in their life. 
because they were more focused on what he could do than who he was. Which leaves us with this question, who is Jesus to you? What do you want more, the gift or the giver? The gift or the gift giver? Do you want who he is or what he can do? Is he your personal genie in a bottle? Or is he the greatest treasure of your heart? love about this, this story and about these miracles is we don't know how much God loves us when we don't know how much God loves us. God loves us more than we love ourselves or than we love ourselves or than we love anything else or than other people or than other things. He loves us more than we love ourselves. God just loves us enough to give us his son. Is he your treasure? Is he your great reward? Is he the thing that you really long for? Or is he your life insurance policy? Is he the person that you throw a prayer up to when you get yourself in trouble? Or is he like your best friend? Like, like there's people in your life, again, there's people in your life who abuse you and abuse you, but then there's also people in your life that like they're, they're, they're that 3 a.m. phone call. They're that person that you've sat by a fire and you've chatted with. They're that person that's been with you through thick and thin. They're that person, listen to me. That's what Jesus longs for, to be that type of person. He wants to be the treasure of your life. But the question that ultimately comes with the, this miracle forces us to wrestle with is, who is Jesus to you? Is he just the miracle giver? Or is he the king that you so desperately long for, the treasure of your life? Would you stand with me and pray? I think this miracle, this sign is so important for us. Because it begs the question of every single person in this room, myself included. What do you want most in life? It's a question that many times are, are, are it's what distinguishes you from your dog. Seriously, when your dog lays its head down at night, like scratches or whatever his name is, right? Scratches doesn't question the meaning of life. Seriously, he doesn't go to bed going, am I fulfilling my purpose? <laughs> no, he's thinking, 
they feed me dinner? And if they did, can I convince them of a second dinner? <laughs> you and I, we were created to be in relationship with Him. You're a perfect with your identity as son, daughter, and child. Dearly loved, dearly cared for child by you. greatest life purpose is to make him a treasure hunt. One of the things that I love to say to my kids is I say, son, as I look him in the eyes and I say, dad doesn't care what you do with the rest of your life. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care what profession you pursue, whether it's you want to be whatever. My greatest trusting in Jesus. I've been living this this walk with him, but today he's spoken to my heart and there's a renewed focus that I need to make him my treasure. <laughs> oh, I've got to put, I can't be trusting in my pools anymore. I got to trust in him. I got to, I got to run to him. If that's you today, would you raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for you. Father, your word says that you are faithful and just, that if we come to you and we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Your word says that if we confess you as our Lord and Savior and if we believe in our heart that you rose from the dead, that we are saved. 
Lord, I pray that today you would do a work inside, Lord. The hearts of those individuals who raise their hands saying, God, I want to put my trust in you today. Lord, I pray as they confess their sin, as they put their trust in you and what you've done and accomplished them, and as they move you from just even being a genie in a bottle to being the treasure of their heart, that God, would you do a transforming work in their heart. But I also pray, Lord, today for every other person that raised their hand that says, God, I just need to put you as the greatest treasure. I need to quit running to my pools. I need to quit trusting in the bubbling waters that surround me, and I need to instead trust in you, Jesus. I pray that you would do that, and that today, God, you would be our all in all. Not just what you can do, but who you are. That, Lord, we would run after you with every part of our whole being, and that today, Jesus, your spirit would fill this place and change and mold us. We ask those all this in your son's mighty and holy name we pray. Amen.